Welcome to a reading of Spurgeon's Sermons. This Reformation MP3 audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free Reformation resources, as well as our complete online catalogue, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, the Puritan hard drive, digital downloads, MP3s, DVDs and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.puritandownloads.com. Also please consider, pray and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, so also he says to everyone, give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Spurgeon's sermons, which we hope you find to be a great blessing, and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ. For he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14, verse 6. The new Park Street pulpit, Sovereign Grace and Man's Responsibility, a sermon, number 207, delivered on Sabbath morning, August 1st, 1858, by the Reverend C.H. Spurgeon at the Music Hall, Royal Surrey Gardens. But Isaiah is very bold, and saith, I have found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. But to Israel he saith, All day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. Romans ten, twenty to twenty one. Doubtless these words primarily refer to the casting away of the Jews and to the choosing of the Gentiles. The Gentiles were a people who sought not after God, but lived in idolatry. Nevertheless Jehovah was pleased in these latter times to send the gospel of his grace to them. While the Jews had long enjoyed the privileges of the word of God, on account of their disobedience and rebellion, were cast away. I believe, however, that while this is the primary object of the words of our text, yet, as Calvin says, the truth taught in the text is a type of a universal fact. As God did choose the people who knew him not, so hath he chosen in abundance of his grace to manifest his salvation to men who are out of the way, while, on the other hand, the men who are lost, after having heard the word, are lost because of their willful sin. For God doth all the day long stretch forth his hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. The system of truth is not one straight line, but two. 
no man will ever get a right view of the gospel until he knows how to look at the two lines at once. I am taught in one book to believe that what I sow I shall reap. I am taught in another place that it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. I see in one place God presiding over all in providence, and yet I see, and I cannot help seeing, that man acts as he pleases, and that God has left his actions to his own will in great measure. Now if I were to declare that man was so free to act, that there was no precedence of God over his actions, I should be driven very near to atheism. And if, on the other hand, I declare that God so overrules all things as that man is not free enough to be responsible, I am driven at once into antinomianism or fatalism. That God predestines that man is responsible are two things that few can see. They are believed to be inconsistent and contradictory, but they are not. It is just the fault of our weak judgment. Two truths cannot be contradictory to each other. If then I find taught in one place that everything is foreordained, that is true. And if I find in another place that man is responsible for all his actions, that is true. And it is my folly that leads me to imagine that two truths can ever contradict each other. These two truths, I do not believe, can ever be welded into one upon any human anvil. But one they shall be in eternity. They are two lines that are so nearly parallel that the mind that shall pursue them farthest will never discover that they converge. But they do converge and they will meet somewhere in eternity close to the throne of God whence all truth to spring. Now this morning I am about to consider the two doctrines. In the 20th verse we have taught us the doctrines of sovereign grace. But Isaiah is very bold and saith, I have found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. In the next verse we have the doctrine of man's guilt in rejecting God. To Israel he saith, all day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. 1. First, then, divine sovereignty as exemplified in salvation. If any man be saved, he is saved by divine grace, and by divine grace alone, and the reason of his salvation is not to be found in him but in God. We are not saved as a result of anything that we do, or that we will, but we will and do as a result of God's good pleasure and the work of his grace in our hearts. No sinner can prevent God, that is, he cannot go before him, cannot anticipate him. God is always first in the matter of salvation. He is before our convictions, before our desires, before our fears, before our hopes. All that is good or ever will be good in us is preceded by the grace of God and is the effect of a divine cause within. 
Now, in speaking of God's gracious acts of salvation this morning, I notice first that they are entirely unmerited. You will see that the people here mentioned certainly did not merit God's grace. They found him, but they never sought for him. He was made manifest to them, but they never asked for him. There never was a man saved yet who merited it. Ask all the saints of God, and they will tell you that their former life was spent in the lusts of the flesh, that in the days of their ignorance they revolted against God and turned back from his ways, that when they were invited to come to him, they despised the invitation, and when warned, cast the warning behind their back. They will tell you that their being drawn by God was not the result of any merit before conversion, for some of them, so far from having any merit, were the very vilest of the vile. They plunged into the very kernel of sin. They were not ashamed of all they were not ashamed of all the things of which it would be a shame for us to speak. They were ringleaders in crime, very princes in the ranks of the enemy, and yet sovereign grace came to them, and they were brought to know the Lord. They will tell you that it was not the result of anything good in their disposition, for although they trust that there is now something excellent implanted in them, yet in the days of their flesh they could see no quality which was perverted, which was not perverted to the service of Satan. Ask them whether they think they were chosen of God because of their courage. They will tell you, no, if they had courage it was defaced, for they were courageous to do evil. Question them whether they were chosen of God because of their talent. They will tell you, no, they had not had... They had, no, they had that talent, but they prostituted it to the service of Satan. Question them whether they were chosen because of the openness and generosity of their disposition. They will tell you that that very openness of temper and that very generosity of disposition led them to plunge deeper into the depths of sin than they otherwise would have done, for they were hail fellow well met with every evil man, and ready to drink and join every jovial party which should come in their way. There was in them no reason whatever why God should have mercy upon them, and the wonder to them is that he did not cut them down in the midst of their sins, blot out their names from the book of life, and sweep them into the gulf where the fire burneth, that shall devour the wicked. But some have said that God chooses his people because he foresees that after he chooses them they will do this, that and the other, which shall be meritorious and excellent. Refer again to the people of God and they will tell you that since their conversion they have had had much to weep over. Although they can rejoice that God has begun the good work in them, they often... Tremble, lest it should not be God's work at all. They will tell you that if they are abundant in faith, yet there are times when they are superabundant in unbelief, that, it some, that if sometimes they are full of works of holiness, 
Yet there are times when they weep many tears to think that those very acts of holiness were stained with sin. The Christian will tell you that he weeps over his tears. He feels that there is filth even in the best of desires, that he has to pray to God to forgive his prayers. For there is sin in the midst of his supplications, and that he has to sprinkle even his best offerings with the atoning blood. For he never else can bring an offering without spot or blemish. You shall appeal to the brightest saint, to the man whose presence in the midst of society is like the presence of an angel, and he will tell you that he is still ashamed of himself. Ah, he will say, you may praise me, but I cannot praise myself. You speak well of me, you applaud me, but if you knew my heart, you would see abundant reason to think of me as a poor sinner saved by grace, who hath nothing whereof to glory, and must bow his head and confess his iniquities in the sight of God. Grace, then, is entirely unmerited. Again, the grace of God is sovereign. By that word we mean that God has an absolute right to give that grace where he chooses and to withhold it when he pleases. He is not bound to give it to any man, much less to all men, and if he chooses to give it to one man and not to another, his answer is, Is thine eye evil because mine eye is good? Can I not do as I will with mine own? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Now I want you to notice the sovereignty of divine grace as illustrated in the text. I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest to them that asked not after me. You would imagine that if God gave his grace to anyone, he would wait until he found them earnestly seeking him. You would imagine that God in the highest heavens would say, I have mercies, but I will leave men alone. And when they feel their need of these mercies and seek me diligently with their whole heart, day and night, with tears and vows and supplications, then I will bless them, but not before. But, beloved, God saith no such thing. It is true he doth bless them that cry unto him, but he blesses them before they cry, for their cries are not their own cries, but cries which he has put into their lips. Their desires are not their own growth, but desires which he has cast like good seed into the soil of their hearts. God saves the men that do not seek him. O wonder of wonders, it is mercy indeed when God saves a a seeker, but how much greater mercy when he seeks the lost himself. Mark the parable of Jesus Christ concerning the lost sheep. It does not run thus, a certain man had a hundred sheep, and one of them did go astray, and he tarried at home, and lo, the sheep came back, and he received it joyfully, and said to his friends, Rejoice, for the sheep that I have lost is come back. No, he went after the sheep. It never would have come after him. It would have wandered farther and farther away. He went after it, over hills of difficulty, down valleys of despondency. He pursued its wandering feet, at last he laid hold of it. He did not drive it before him. He did not lead it, but he carried it himself all the way. And when he brought it home, he did not say, The sheep is come back, but I have found the sheep which was lost. Men do not seek God first. God seeks them first. 
And if any one of you are seeking him today, it is because he has first sought you. If you are desiring him, if you are desiring him, he desired you first, and your good desires and earnest seeking will not be the cause of your salvation, but the effects of previous grace given to you. Well, says another, I should have thought that although the Saviour might not require an earnest seeking and sighing and groaning and a continuous searching after him, yet certainly we would have desired and demanded that every man, before he had grace, should ask for it. That indeed, beloved, seemed natural, and God will give grace to them that ask for it. But mark the text that he was manifested to them that asked not for him. That is to say, before we ask, God gives us grace. The only reason why any man ever begins to pray is because God has put previous grace in his heart, which leads him to pray. I remember when I was converted to God, I was an Arminian thoroughly. I thought I had begun the good work myself. And I used sometimes to sit down and think, well, I sought the Lord for years before I found him. And I think I began to compliment myself upon the fact that I had perseveringly entreated of him in the midst of such discouragement. But one day the thought struck me, how was it you came to seek God? And in an instant the answer came from my soul. Why? Because he led me to do it. He must first have shown me my need of him, or else I should never have sought him. He must have shown me his preciousness, or I never should have thought him worth seeking. And at once I saw the doctrines of grace as clear as possible. God must begin. Nature can never rise above itself. You put water into a reservoir and it will rise as high as that, but no higher if, it le if left alone. Now, it is not in human nature to seek the Lord. Human nature is depraved, and therefore there must be the extraordinary pressure of the Holy Spirit put upon the heart to lead us first to ask for mercy. But Mark, we do not know anything about that while the Spirit is operating. We find that out afterwards. We ask as much as if we were asking all of ourselves. Our business is to seek the Lord as if there were no Holy Spirit at all. But although we do not know it, there must always be a previous motion of the Spirit in our heart before there will be a motion of our heart towards him. No sinner can be beforehand with thee. Thy sovereign, thy grace is most sovereign, most rich and most free. Let me give you an illustration. You see that man on his horse, surrounded by a body of troopers. How proud he is and how he reins up his horse with conscious dignity. Sir, what have you got there? What are those dispatches you treasure up with so much care? Oh, sir, I have that in my hand that will vex the church of God in and Damascus. I have dragged the fellows into the synagogue, both men and women. I have scourged them and compelled them to blaspheme. And I have this commission from the high priest to drag them to Jerusalem that I may put them to death. 
Saul, Saul, have you no love for Christ? Love to him, no. When they stoned Stephen, I took care of the witnesses' clothes, and I rejoiced to do it. I wish I had, I had had the crucifying of their master, for I hate them with perfect hatred, and I breathe out threatenings and slaughters against them. What, what do you say of this man? If he be saved, will you not grant that it must be some divine sovereignty that converts him? Look at poor Pilate, how much there was that was hopeful in him. He was willing to save the master, but he feared and trembled. If we had had our choice, we should have said, Lord, save Pilate. He does not want to kill Christ. He labours to let him escape. But slay the bloodthirsty Saul. He is the very chief of sinners. No, says God, I will do as I will with mine own. The heavens open, the brightness of glory descends, brighter than the noonday sun. Stunned with the light, he falls to the ground, and a voice is heard addressing him. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. He rises up. God appears to him. Lo, I have made thee a chosen vessel to bear my name among the Gentiles. Is not that sovereignty, sovereign grace, without any previous seeking? God was found of him that sought not for him. He manifested himself to one that asked him not. Some will say that it was that that was that was a miracle, but it is one that is repeated every day in the week. I knew a man once who had not been to the house of God for a long time, and one Sunday morning. Having been to market to buy a pair of ducks for his son at Sunday dinner, he happened to see a house of God opened as he was passing by. Well, he thought, I will hear what these fellows are up to. He went inside. The hymn that was being sung struck his attention. He listened to the sermon, forgot his ducks, discovered his own character, went home and threw himself upon his knees before God and after a short time it pleased God to give him joy and peace in believing. That man had nothing in him to begin with, nothing that could have led you to imagine he ever would be saved, but simply because God would have it so. He struck the effectual blow of grace, and the man was brought to himself. But we are, each of us who are saved, the very people who are the best illustrations of the matter, to this day, my wonder is that ever the Lord should have chosen thee. I cannot make it out. And my only answer to the question is, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. I have now, I think, stated the doctrine pretty plainly. Let me only say a few words about it. Some people are very much afraid of this truth. They say, it is true, I dare say, but still you ought not to preach it before a mixed assembly. It is very well for the comfort of God's people, but it is to be very carefully handled and not to be publicly preached upon. Very well, sir, I leave you to settle that matter with my master. He gave me this great book to preach from, and I cannot preach from anything else. If he has put anything in it you think is not fit, go and complain to him and not to me. I am simply a servant, 
And if his errand, and if his errand that I am to tell is objectionable, I cannot help it. If I send my servant to the door with a message and he delivers it faithfully, he does not deserve to be scolded. Let me have the blame, not the servant. So I say, blame my master, not me, for I do but proclaim his message. No, says one, is not to be preached, but it is to be preached. Every word of God is given by inspiration and is profitable for some good end. Does not the Bible say so? Let me tell you the reason why many of our churches are declining is just because this doctrine has not been preached. Wherever this doctrine has been upheld, it has always been down with popery. The first reformers held this doctrine and preached it. Well said it, Church of England divine, to some who railed at him, Look at your own Luther. Do you not consider him to be the teacher of the Church of England? What Calvin and the other reformers taught is to be found in his book upon the freedom of the will. Besides, we can point you to a string of ministers from the beginning even until now. Talk of apostolic succession. The man who preaches the doctrines of grace has an apostolic succession indeed. Can we not trace our pedigree through a whole line of men like Newton and Whitfield and Owen and Bunyan, straight away on till we come to Calvin, Luther, Zwingli, and then we can go back from them to Savonarola, to Jerome of Prague, to Huss, and then back to Augustine, the mighty preacher of Christianity, and from Augustine to Paul is but one step. We need not be ashamed of our pedigree. Although Calvinists are now considered to be heter- heterodox, we are and ever must be orthodox. It is the old doctrine. Go and buy any puritanical book and see if you can find Arminianism in it. Search all the bookstalls over and see if you can find one large folio book of olden times without anything in it but the doctrine of the free grace of God. Let this once be brought to bear upon the minds of men, and away go the doctrines of penance and confession. Away goes paying for the pardon of sin. If grace be free and sovereign in the hand of God, down goes the doctrine of priestcraft. Away go buying and selling indulgences and such like things. They are swept to the four winds of heaven, and the efficacy of good works is dashed in pieces like Dagon before the ark of the Lord. Well, says one, I like the doctrine, still there are very few that preach it, and those that do are very high. Very likely, but I care little what anybody calls me. It signifies very little what men call you. Suppose you call, they call you a hyper. That does not make you anything wicked, does it? Suppose they call you an antinomian. That will not make you one. I must confess, however, that there are some men who preach this doctrine who are doing 10,000 times more harm than good because they don't preach the next doctrine I'm going to proclaim, which is just as true. They have this to be the sail, but they have not the other to be the ballast. They can preach one side, but not the other. They can go along with the high doctrine, but they will not preach the whole of the word. Such men caricature the word of God. And just let me say here that it is the custom of a certain body of ultra-Calvinists 
to call those of us who teach that it is a duty of man to repent and believe mongrel Calvinists. If you hear any of them say so, give them my uh, my most respectful compliments and ask them whether they ever read Calvin's works in their lives. Not that I care what Calvin said or did not say, but ask them whether they ever read his works, and if they say no, as they must say, for there are 48 large volumes, you can tell them, that the man whom they call a Mongol Calvinist, though he has not read them all, has read a very good share of them, and knows their spirit. And he knows that he preaches substantially what Calvin preached, that every doctrine he preaches may be found in Calvin's commentaries or some part of scripture or other. We are true Calvinists, however. Calvin is is nobody to us. Jesus Christ and him crucified and the old-fashioned Bible are our standards. Beloved, let us take God's word as it stands. If we find high doctrine there, let it be high. If we find low doctrine, let it be low. Let us set up no other standard than the Bible affords. 2. Now then, for the second point. There now, says my ultra friend, there now, says my ultra friend, he is going to contradict himself. No, my friend, I'm not. I'm only going to contradict you. The second point is man's responsibility. But to Israel, he saith, all day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. Now these people, whom God had cast away, had been wooed, had been sought, had been entreated to be saved. But they would not, and inasmuch as they were not saved, it was the effect of their disobedience and their gainsaying. That lies clearly enough in the text. When God sent the prophets to Israel and stretched forth his hands, what was it for? What did he wish therein to come to him for? Why, to be saved? No, says one, it was for temporal mercies. Not so, my friend, the verse before is concerning spiritual mercies. And so is this one, for they refer to the same thing. Now, was God sincere in his offer? God forgive the man that dares to say he was not. God is undoubtedly sincere in every act he did. He sent his prophets. He entreated the people of Israel to lay hold on spiritual things, but they would not. And though he stretched out his hands all the day long, yet they were a disobedient and gainsaying people, and would not have his love, and on their head rests their blood. Now let me notice the wooing of God and what sort it is. First it was the most affectionate wooing in the world. Lost sinners who sit under the sound of the gospel are not lost for the want of the most affectionate invitation. God says he stretched out his hands. You know what that means. You have seen the child who is disobedient and will not come to his father. The father puts out his hands and says, Come, my child, come. I am ready to forgive you. The tear in his eye and his bowels move with compassion. And he says, Come, come. God says this is what he did. He stretched out his hands. That is what he has done to some of you. 
You that are not saved today are without excuse. But God stretched out his hands to you and said, Come, come, long have you sat beneath the sound of the ministry, and it's been a faithful one, I trust, and a weeping one. Your minister has not forgotten to pray for your souls in secret, or to weep over you when no one or I saw him, and he has endeavoured to persuade you as an ambassador from God. God is my witness. I have sometimes stood in this pulpit, and I could not have pleaded harder for my own life than I have pleaded with you. In Christ's name I have cried, Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I have wept over you as the Saviour did, and used his words on his behalf. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered thy children together, as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and you would not. And you know that your conscience has often been touched. You have often been moved. You could not resist it. God was so kind to you. He invited you to affect it. He invited you so affectionately by the word. He dealt so gently with you by his providence. His hands were stretched out, and you could hear his voice speaking in your ears. Come unto me. Come, come now. Let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as wool. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be whiter than snow. You have heard him cry, O every one that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. You have heard him say, with all the affection of a father's heart, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him turn unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and unto our God, for he will abundantly pardon. O God does plead with men that they would be saved, and this day he says to every one of you, Repent, and be converted for the remission of your sins. Turn ye unto me, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And with love divine he woos you as a father woos his child, putting out his hands and crying, Come unto me, come unto me. No, says one strong doctrine man, God never invites all men to himself. He invites none but certain characters. Stop, sir, that is all you know about it. Did you ever read that parable where it is said, My oxen and my fatling are killed? And all things are ready, come into the marriage. And they that were bidden would not come. And did you never read that they all began to make excuse and that they were punished because they did not accept the invitations? Now, if the invitation is not to be made to anyone, but to the man who will accept it, how can that parable be true? The fact is, the oxen and fatling are killed. The wedding feast is ready, and the trumpet sounds. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come and eat, come and drink. Here are the provisions spread. Here is an all-sufficiency. The invitation is free. It is a great invitation. Whosoever will, let him come and take of the water of life freely. And that invitation is couched in tender words. Come to me, my child. Come to me. All day long I have stretched forth my hands. And note again, this invitation was very frequent. The words, all the day long, may be translated daily. Daily have I stretched forth my hands, sinner. God has not called you once to come, 
and then let you alone. But every day he has been at you. Every day has conscience spoken to you. Every day has providence warned you. And every Sabbath has the word of God wooed you. Oh, how much some of you will have to account for at God's great bar. I cannot now read your characters, but I know there are some of you who will have a terrible account at last. All the day long has God been wooing you. From the first dawn of your life, he wooed you through your mother, and she used to put your little hands together and teach you to say, Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon a little child, pity my simplicity, suffer me to come to thee. And in your boyhood, God was still stretching out his hands after you. How your Sunday school teacher endeavoured to bring you to the Saviour. How often your youthful heart was affected, but you put all that away, and you are still untouched by it. How often did your mother speak to you, and your father warn you, and you have forgotten the prayer in the bedroom when you were sick, when your mother kissed your burning forehead knelt down and prayed to God to spare your life and then added that prayer Lord save my boy's soul and you recollect the Bible she gave you when you first went out apprentice and the prayer she wrote on that yellow front leaf when she gave it you did not perhaps know but you may know now how earnestly she longed after you that you might be formed anew in Jesus in Christ Jesus how she followed you with her prayers and how she entreated you entreated with how she entreated with her God for you. And you have not yet surely forgotten how many Sabbaths you have spent, and how many times you have been warned. Why you have had a wagon load of sermons wasted on you. A hundred and four sermons you have heard every year, and some of you more, and yet you are still just what you were. But sinners Sermon hearing is an awful thing, unless it is blessed to our souls. If God has kept on stretching out his hands every day and all the day, it will be a hard thing for you when you shall be justly condemned, but not only for your breaches of the law, but for your willful rejection of the gospel. It is probable that God will keep on stretching out his hands to you until your hairs grow grey, still continually inviting you. And perhaps when you are nearing death, he will still say, Come unto me, come unto me. But if you will persist in hardening your heart, if still you reject Christ, I beseech you, let nothing make you imagine that you shall go unpunished. Oh, I do tremble sometimes when I think of that class of ministers who tell sinners that they are not guilty if they do not seek the Saviour. <coughs> How they shall be found innocent at God's great day, I do not know. It seems to be a fearful thing that they should be lulling poor souls into sleep by telling them that it is not their duty to seek Christ and repent, but that they may do as they like about it, and that when they perish, they will be none the more guilty for having heard the word. My master did say that. Remember how he said, And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted into heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you, 
that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. Jesus did not talk thus when he spoke to Chorazin and Bathsheba, for he said, Woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bathsheba, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. It was not the way Paul preached. He did not tell sinners that there was no guilt in despising the cross. Hear the apostle's words once more. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense or reward, how shall we escape? if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. Sinner, at the great day of God, thou must give an account for every warning thou hast ever had. For every time thou hast read thy Bible, ay, and for every time thou hast neglected to read it, for every Sunday when the house of God was open, and thou didst neglect to avail thyself of the opportunity of hearing the word, and for every time thou didst hear it, and didst not improve it. Ye who are careless hearers, are tying faggots for your own burning forever. Ye that hear and straightway forget, or hear with levity, are digging for yourselves a pit, into which ye must be cast. Remember, no one will be responsible for your damnation, but yourself at the last day. God will not be responsible for it. As I live, says the Lord, and that is a great oath, I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, but had rather that he should turn unto me and live. God has done much for you. He sent you his gospel. You are not born in a heathen land. He has given you the book of books. He has given you an enlightened conscience. And if you perish under the sound of the ministry, you perish more fearfully and terribly than if you had perished anywhere else. This doctrine is as much God's word as the other. You ask me to reconcile the two. I answer, they do not want any reconcilement. I never tried to reconcile them to myself because I never could see a discrepancy. If you begin to put fifty or sixty quibbles to me, I cannot give you and give an answer. Both are true. No two truths can be inconsistent with each other, and what you have to do is to believe them both. With the first one, the saint has most to do. Let him praise the free and sovereign grace of God and bless his name. With the second, the sinner has most to do. O sinner, humble thyself under the mighty hand of God, when thou thinkest of how often he has shown his love to thee by bidding thee come to himself, and how often thou hast spurned his word and refused his mercy and turned a deaf ear to every invitation and hast gone thy way to rebel against the God of love and violate the commands of him that loved thee. And now, how shall I conclude? My first exhortation shall be to Christian people. My dear friends, I beseech you, do not in any way give yourselves lip to any system of faith apart from the word of God, the Bible, 
and the Bible alone is the religion of Protestants. I am the successor of the great and venerable, venerated Dr. Gill, whose theology is almost universally received among the stronger Calvinistic churches. But although I venerate his memory and believe his teachings, yet he is not my rabbi. What you find in God's word is for you to believe and to receive. Never be frightened at a doctrine, and above all, never be frightened at a name. Someone said to me the other day that he thought the truth lay somewhere between the two extremes. He meant right, but I think he was wrong. I do not think the truth lies between the two extremes, but in them both. I believe the higher a man goes, the better when he is preaching the matter of salvation. The matter why a man is saved is grace, 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 and you may go as high as you like there. But when you come to the question as to why men are damned, then the Arminian is far more right than the Antinomian. I care not for any denomination or party. I am as high as Huntingdon upon the matter of salvation. But question me about damnation, and you will get a very different answer. By the grace of God, I ask no man's applause. I preach the gospel as I find it. Where we get wrong is where the Calvinist begins to meddle with the question of damnation and interferes with the justice of God, or when the Arminian denies the doctrine of grace. My second exhortation is, Sinners, I beseech every one of you who are unconverted and ungodly this morning to put away every form and fashion of excuse that the devil would have you make concerning your being unconverted. Remember that all the teaching in the world can never excuse you for being enemies to God by wicked works. When we beseech you to be reconciled to him, it is because we know you will never be in your proper place until you are reconciled. God has made you. Can it be right that you should disobey him? God feeds you every day. Can it be right that you should still live in disobedience to him? Remember, when the heavens shall be on a blaze, when Christ shall come to judge the earth in righteousness and his people with equity, there will not be one excuse that you can make which will be valid at the last day. If you should attempt to say, Lord, I have never heard the word, his answer would be, Thou didst hear it, thou heardest it plainly, but Lord, I had an evil will. Out of thine own mouth will I condemn thee, Thou hadst that evil will, and I condemn thee for it. This is a condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil. But Lord, some will say, I was not predestinated. What hast thou to do with that? Thou didst do according to thine own will, when thou didst rebel. Thou wouldst not come unto me, and now I destroy thee forever. Thou hast broken my law. On thine own head be the guilt. If a sinner could say at the great day, Lord, I could not be saved, anyhow his torment in hell would be mitigated by that thought. But this shall be the very edge of the sword and the very burning of the fire. Ye knew your duty, and ye did it not. Ye trampled on everything that was holy. Ye neglected the Saviour. And how shall ye escape if ye neglect so great salvation? Now, with regard to myself, you may, some of you, go away and say, 
that I was antinomian in the first part of the sermon and Arminian at the end. I cannot. I beg of you to preach the gospel for yourselves, to the law and to the testimony. If I speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in me. I am willing to come to that test. Have nothing to do with me where I have nothing to do with Christ. Where I separate from the truth, cast my words away. But if what I say be God's teaching, I charge you by him that sent me, give these things your thoughts, and turn unto the Lord with all your hearts. This ends this reading and recording of Spurgeon's sermon. Stillwater's Revival Books is now located at PuritanDownloads.com. It's your worldwide online Reformation home for the very best in free and discounted classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, MP3s, and videos. For much more information on the Puritans and Reformers, including the best free and discounted classic and contemporary books, MP3s, digital downloads, and videos, please visit Stillwater's Revival Books at PuritanDownloads.com. Stillwater's Revival Books also publishes the Puritan Hard Drive, the most powerful and practical Christian study tool ever produced. All thanks and glory be to the mercy, grace, and love of the Lord Jesus Christ for this remarkable and wonderful new Christian study tool. The Puritan Hard Drive contains over 12,500 of the best Reformation books, MP3s, and videos ever gathered onto one portable Christian study tool. An extraordinary collection of Puritan, Protestant, Calvinistic, Presbyterian, Covenanter, and Reformed Baptist resources. It's fully upgradable and it's small enough to fit in your pocket. The Puritan hard drive combines an embedded database containing many millions of records with the most amazing and extraordinary custom Christian search and research software ever created. The Puritan hard drive has been produced to assist you in the fascinating and exhilarating spiritual, intellectual, familial, ecclesiastical, and societal adventure that is living the Christian life. It has been specifically designed so that you might more faithfully know, serve, and love the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as to help you to do all you can to bring glory to His great name. If you want to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, then the Puritan hard drive is for you. Visit PuritanDownloads.com today for much more information on the Puritan hard drive and to take advantage of all the free and discounted Reformation and Puritan books, MP3s, and videos that we offer at Stillwater's Revival Books.